whereas the widespread and systemic use of non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, has been found to protect an employer's reputation at the expense of victims or whistleblowers who may be unable to report or discuss their concerns with family, friends, co-workers, or therapists, whereas NDAs are routinely used to cover up abuse in schools, youth clubs, universities, organizations, and religious institutions where revealing the details of the settlement may result in reputational risk or criminal charges against the perpetrator. Be it resolved that the Canadian Bar Association promote the fair and proper use of NDAs as a method to protect intellectual property and discourage their use to silence victims and whistleblowers who report experiences of abuse, discrimination and harassment in Canada and advocate and lobby the federal, provincial and territorial governments to enact changes to legislation and policies to ensure NDAs are not misused for the purpose of silencing victims and whistleblowers. Hi, I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher and I voted in favor of this resolution. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Today, on The Every Lawyer, we discuss the misuse of non-disclosure agreements by Canada's legal professionals. Joining me for this discussion are Joanne Stark, who put forward the resolution, Ronald Payne Casey, who thinks we should, quote, just get rid of them, full stop, end quote, Jennifer Kaur from the CBA A2J subcommittee and Professor Julie McFarlane, who founded Can't Buy My Silence, together with Zelda Perkins, who achieved notoriety for having signed and then broken an NDA with the now-convicted sex offender Harvey Weinstein. The conversation got heated quickly as these four professionals gathered to discuss a topic they are most passionate about, the misuse of NDAs. I really only had to ask one introductory, uncontroversial question. Where are NDAs commonly used in Canada? We've seen a process in which NDAs have become a default in almost all settlement agreements now. They are usually attached as part of a release waiver in a civil settlement agreement. And many lawyers will tell you that up to 95% of the agreements that they make now include a non-disclosure agreement. We have been focusing in the work of the campaign on their use in the employment context, principally to cover up various forms of misconduct, including sexual harassment, misconduct and discrimination and other kinds of harassment. But in fact, we know that they are also very common in consumer disputes. They're also very common in professional services disputes. So, for example, um, why didn't we know that baby formula was tainted and damaging the health of babies for so long? Well, because it was covered up in an NDA. Um, similarly, we have learned recently that the original research on the link between asbestos and cancer was also shielded in an NDA for 10 years before that became public knowledge. So we're talking about their use habitually and as a matter of default 
Uh, and in fact, there was a case just fought in Ontario on the basis that you don't even have to show the clause any longer to a client because it's such a standard template that they should just assume it's going to be there anyway. Now, the judge disagreed, but I think that does give you some idea of the prevalence here. Julie McFarlane is a distinguished university professor emerita at the University of Windsor. Julie has also held numerous visiting appointments at universities all over the world. Julie has received many awards for her work, including the International Academy of Mediators Award of Excellence in 2005, the David Mundell Medal for Legal Writing in 2016, and one of Canada's 25 most influential lawyers in 2017. In 2020, she was named the Order of Canada. Julie is co-founder with Zelda Perkins of Can't Buy My Silence, which campaigns for a change in the law on the misuse of non-disclosure agreements. They're buying your silence. They're buying your silence. The, the, uh, the defendant uh, has a continuing uh, uh, hold on you that ensures you remain silent, failing which uh, your your settlement may be in jeopardy. Uh, so the, the, that's the whole problem here. It's a whole problem that the the in my case is always employers uh, continue to have a grasp on departed employees uh, who they may have done badly by, um, uh, and uh, they continue to have hold ransom over them uh, on this as of the NDA. Uh, when it's, in my experience, when it's a typical NDA, you don't disclose that they paid you $100,000 to go away or that uh, whatever. I don't really have a problem with those. Those are commercial transactions, right? Uh, they don't want the rest of the employment, the employees to understand. But when it's uh, uh, harassment, sexual harassment issues um, uh, or some other form of harassment issues where they're buying the silence, the price remains forever. You're, you're, you're wedded to them. Uh, you're joined at the head uh, with the employer. You never, ever, ever separate because you have to watch whatever you say because the the person who's attached to your head is uh, is always listening to everything you say that you don't screw up and uh, and offend them and breach the NDA. That's what's going on. Ronald A. Pink Casey practices in the fields of governance for organizations, both public and private, pensions and benefits law, collective bargaining for public and private clients, municipal law, and labor and employment law. An advocate for labor relations, employment standards, and pensions and benefits, Ron has a long history with the Canadian Bar Association. He has served as president of the Nova Scotia branch, chair of the National Continuing Legal Education Committee, the first chair of the International Development Committee, and as acting director of the Canadian Bar Insurance Association. And can I just add to Ron's point that... This is often characterized as a great deal for complainants because they get so much money because of their silence. Um, that is empirically very difficult to verify because we know that sexual harassment settlements, for example, um, are very small. Um, and the figures that we have from research shows that uh, most of them are actually $10,000 or less. So the idea that there is somehow great riches to be made by people by selling their silence is also a misconception. You know, when you think about it, Julie, the, uh, the settlements seldom exceed the general maximum in the human rights legislation, which is 30 or 40,000 bucks, right? Which are deplorably low. I mean, I, I find this all to, I've 
I've often wanted to challenge this uh, as a charter violation that you, you're somehow restricting my right for my damages because of my sexual discrimination uh, against me. Uh, how is that fair? And uh, so, but I won't go there on this topic. But but I just think that that you're quite right. Uh, it, they women particularly uh, in these sort of situations just want this all to be behind them. And for $10,000 or whatever, they'll just take it and go. But the problem is they never leave. It's like Hotel California. You can never check out of an, with an NDA. Never, ever, ever. And I think it's also important to note that we're seeing them also in cases of racial discrimination. I'm sure that's true. And that's uh, on the increase. And also in, in general workplace harassment, bullying. Definitely. And of course, uh, they're being used uh, often where people are looking to, like in situations of whistleblowing, where people are trying to report a wrong that's happening in in a workplace or uh, a public interest wrong, like environmental issues. Jennifer Kaur is supervising lawyer and project manager for the Community Legal Assistance Society's SHARP Workplaces Legal Clinic. Jennifer provides legal advice and delivers education and training on workplace sexual harassment. She is also a member of the Uniform Law Conference of Canada's Working Group on MDAs. I've actually also seen it too, where not only are you told you can't speak about what happened at your employment, but also that if you are asked, you have to say that you were treated fairly, even if you were the subject of harassment and bullying, um, that if asked, you must say that the organization treated you fairly, even if you got nothing or even, you know, a couple thousand dollars. Joanne Stark is a lawyer and certified legal coach and operates Stark Solutions Legal Coaching and Consulting, which offers virtual help to self-represented litigants and training to lawyers who want to offer legal coaching to their own clients. She is the volunteer president of Legal Coaches Association, a nonprofit she founded in 2019 to increase access to justice. She is also a former director of advocacy at CBA BC. And the other typical clause that we see a lot is the um, cooperation clause, which says that nobody who signs an NDA can cooperate or speak in any way to anybody bringing a similar complaint in the workplace. In other words, where the perpetrator pops up again because there's been an NDA, so they're back again. Um, you have also signed away, apparently, um, your right to cooperate or collaborate with anybody else on a complaint. Have any one of you signed an NDA in your life? If we have, we're not allowed to tell you because that's what an NDA says. That's, that's actually true. So people who sign NDAs are told they can't say that they've signed an NDA. Are you serious? And on our survey, which is collecting data on prevalence, we have three possible answers to the question that you've just asked, Julia. Um, and those answers are yes, no, and can't say for legal reasons. No way. And yes, and can't say for legal reasons are both yeses. We've been highlighting the voices of people who've been silenced, but we have kept their identities anonymous. Um, and when Joanne and Jennifer and Ron talk about the cases that they've they've been involved in, they're not disclosing anyone's identity. And we've collected those stories on the Can't Buy My Silence website, but they're all very carefully anonymized. And I think, of course, 
this issue has come to the forefront now because people have chosen to break their NDA. So people like Zelda Perkins, who is the co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence with Julie, um, she came forward to break her NDA with Harvey Weinstein, and that's quite uh, well known. And then other people have started to speak out. So it's brought this movement that came from the Me Too movement where people are starting to talk about it and sharing their experiences. It seemed to me from the work, all the work I've done on this, that most of these NDAs aren't enforceable anyway. And if you look at the case law that's developing in the US and in and beginning to develop in the UK, although we, do, we haven't seen that in Canada yet because most people are too frightened to challenge their NDAs. We've just explained that even saying you have one is technically a breach. But I think that most lawyers would agree that it's very questionable whether these clauses are even enforceable. They're very broad. They're very vague. Um, they often rest on a serious power imbalance. And we know at the campaign from the stories that we collect that people rarely understand what they're signing and often feel a sense of coercion. So you've got about six or seven different reasons there why they might not be enforceable. Um, yet, Lawyers continue to write them into contracts and to press them on people. And I think that that raises um, quite an interesting issue in terms of ethical practice. Well, the, the issue, though, uh, many, many are signed without counsel. Many are signed with counsel. Even though signed with counsel, be done with counsel who haven't really thought about it because it's, it's de rigueur. Yep. And, uh, but most importantly, no one can afford to litigate. Uh, to the, the or to challenge the NDA, that's a big problem. I mean, who's got the twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to uh, to defend it or to make an application to get rid of it? So sort of thing nobody does, and 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 it's largely it's largely I don't want to generalize, but it's largely women who uh, they just can't, and for good reason, they just can't get over it, uh, and they don't want to live it again. So if you're going to litigate it, you're going to live the whole thing all over again. And then they just get re-traumatized. And that's it. There's, there's no, you don't win this stuff. It all stems from the fact of the harasser himself, who's the big prick in this whole thing, right? That's the problem. And they're the ones who should be punished. Why is the woman punished all the time? Lifelong. I understand. I'm just, just you know, I'm just old and cranky. But those those women just have been so hurt and, and done badly by they get abused by the man, and then they can continue to be abused because they can't speak about it. I've had clients who wouldn't even speak to their family about it. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, they're scared to, and they don't even mention it. Look, you guys, there just should be a law against it. Well, it's, it's great to hear you talk about it that way, Ron. You've been practicing a long time, so I'm just wondering when you became so strong against the NDAs? Does it sound like I've been practicing too long, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no I've, had, I've had a number of cases um, um, over the years, and, and, and sometimes the old cases come back, and, and it's happened recently where uh, the, the um, women in the first case, now 10, 11, 12 years ago, couldn't speak in a new case about what happened to a new person who was who, – who, was alleged to have, have uh, harassed somebody else. Uh, and happened that I was representing all the harassees. Uh, and, and, and the women the first harass are just devastated. And they're very sophisticated, smart, brilliant women. You, you know, 
just so smart uh, and very successful, but they have this hidden secret that they can't talk about. And when you raise it with them, it's just a flood of emotion and, and, and they never get over it. They never get over it because it's always lying in the back of their mind. And so uh, they can't write about it. They can't talk about it. Can't do it. Can't do conferences on it. They just can't. It's a, it's a, it's a penalty of silence for something that they didn't do. They pay the price. And do they have any psychological support? Yes. They're all in treatment. Still, 10 years later, that's when we raised it the last time, uh, they all had to go back to see their, their, their counselors again. All because it got raised again. They never, it's like a death sentence on these women. They never get over it. You see, I think one of the things that I've observed, and I don't know whether you've seen this too, Joanne and Jennifer, is that for a long time, lawyers, and actually I would include in this trade union representatives, um, have said to people, everybody signs this, just sign it, don't worry about it. And I've had many conversations in the last six months in particular with both lawyers and union reps who have come up to me at the end of some kind of presentation or whatever, uh, or who have written to me. And, you know, in the flesh, I've seen people with tears in their eyes saying, I had no idea until you talked about this, just what the impact was of these clauses. I thought people would probably just take them with a grain of salt. There's no video camera following you around. But that isn't how people feel about this. The people who signed these agreements, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, are really law-abiding people who believe that they have to keep the promise that they made in it. And so they take those promises far more seriously, perhaps, than the people who were, you know, professionals and experts in the area thought that they really needed to. And I think it's really important to recognize that this is causing enormous emotional damage. And I want to also just underscore something that Jennifer said, which is, you know, a lot of Ron's practice has been around these issues of sexual harassment. We see a very large number of racial discrimination cases being ended in NDAs as well. That is a very, very common area um, for which we're seeing NDAs being used. And I don't think that's what Canadians want to be, hiding discrimination, hiding racism in the, in the workplace. I think that one of the things too you see is that by doing this, it not only is harming the victims and re-traumatizing them over and over again, technically even for a lifetime for them, but it's allowing the institution or the organizations to protect uh, in that cone of silence, the perpetrator of these things. So as Ron brings out, they can continue in the background to continue to harass or bully or assault people. It goes unchecked and it can go unchecked in the case of Harvey Weinstein, you know, decades. Um, and so that's not something we as Canadians believe in. We don't want to have toxic workplaces. We don't want our children exposed in sporting associations to toxic environments. That's the last thing we want. It's the last thing we stand for. And so as lawyers, you know, we're the ones that are putting the pieces of paper in front of these people. We're the ones drafting these documents. And it's up to us to really sit down and talk to our clients and understand what these particular NDAs really mean in those situations. Otherwise, um, you could see things go unchecked for a very long time and even more people harmed as a result of that. But Joanne, on the other side of that equation is there's another lawyer representing the, uh, the, the perpetrator who insists that if you want this money, you have to sign the NDA. Yeah. And so the, the squeeze comes upon your client, the plaintiff uh, in the matter, who, who gets this little bit of money or a lot of money, matters not, 
but they have to, to have to sign the NDA. So they're the ones who pay the price. It's, there's no winners in this. And, um, and it's so simple. The employer is, is just perpetuating uh, the abuse to other women. One person may have gone off, but that SOB who's still there will do it to somebody else. I think there's a real opportunity there, though, Ron, is if for an organization, if you want to improve your your um, reputation publicly, is if you step forward and say, we have policies, not only that we've created, but that we've actually implemented that say, we are going to investigate every complaint, we're going to protect victims, we're going to um, ensure that our, our workplace is not toxic. Um, it's a way to spin it. But again, we, we as lawyers think, oh, no, we just want to protect our client, we want to protect the organization we represent as, for example, I've been general legal counsel, so you want to protect your organization. But the one way you can actually spin it is say, we found a problem here, and we dealt with it, and we corrected it. And in the eyes of the public, sometimes that can be a win. Only if you get rid of the perpetrator. Exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. And only do it the first time the complaint comes in. I mean, I'm convinced that the reason a lot of people, uh, employers want NDAs is because they've been hearing about this person for years and they've never done anything about it. Yeah, they're afraid. Right. Right. But that means that they need to act right away. But I think Joanne is absolutely right that there there is a win here. And, you know, we are starting to see organizations commit to not doing this. And, you know, the other place, just to make sure that we broaden the conversation out to include this, the other place that we know that these are being used isn't just when there's a complaint coming forward. There are also um, many, many, many examples now of what I call preemptive NDAs, which are NDAs that are signed when somebody is hired originally. Now, fair enough, if you're going to be in contact with confidential information, if there's sensitive information within the organization, but these these contracts of employment now say you cannot speak about anything that happens in this workplace, not just commercially sensitive material, not just intellectual property, but anything that happens in this workplace. So you've already been told you can't complain about any racism or sexism or sexual harassment before you've even entered the workplace. It's preemptive. But I'm very, this is, and this is legal because I mean, you just mentioned this issue. I'm, I feel like there's so many things that, are, that cannot be legal with that. Just, and it, but it passed and, and, and there's nothing that has been done in Canada like to go against them, those preemptive. Well, not yet. Not but yet, we're, but we're, it's coming. We're trying to make sure that that happens. I mm-hmm. mean, I think, you know, you've just seen a, a law passed in the U.S. actually to stop point of hiring sexual harassment NDAs. But we need to be very clear about this also in relation to workplace investigations where many, many people now have to sign indefinite NDAs, which makes no sense. You don't even know what the result of the investigation is going to be. I'm talking about the law in the U.S. and talking about legislation because I think it's, Ronald, you said it should be illegal. So are we there? Is it something that could happen? I know that the CBA passed a resolution advocating to change uh, legislation. And do you think this is something that, you know, a a law that could maybe limit the use of NDAs or making it like illegal for instance, sexual harassment? And so can you talk a bit about that? What's going on in the legislation in Canada regarding NDAs? Shall I do the rapid update? Yeah, please. (laughs) (laughs) It's what, where's Julie been in the last six months? <laughs> well, there's legislation being tabled now in um, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and Manitoba. 
Um, and we are on the verge of seeing it in uh, Ontario. It's just being finalized. So those are all bills that follow reasonably closely the model of Prince Edward Island, which was the very first place to enact this legislation um, and also drew on models from other places in the world um, where we've been working. So we do have the possibility of legislation. We've also now got a federal bill that was tabled just 10 days ago, which would take the threat of NDAs away from federal employees and civil servants because we know the federal government uses them regularly um, and they are used by the federal government in cases of sexual misconduct and racial discrimination. I can, I can, um, I can verify that. And also federally funded organizations, which would include organizations like Hockey Canada, who've been using uh, money, as we all know now, to cover up settlements about rape and sexual assault. And, and I think I can also add that the Uniform Law Conference of Canada established a working group to be looking at non-disclosure agreements and considering what policy and developing a draft legislation for use. So really uh, thinking about what the scope of such legislation should be. Because as we've discussed, a lot of the legislation has originally focused in other countries on sexual harassment or sexual misconduct. But as you unpack it, uh, you see that they're being used in all sorts of other circumstances and uh, where there is a power imbalance and people are being unfairly silenced without really understanding what what they're agreeing to. Yeah, I think what you're really seeing now is since the CBA did pass the resolution, which was just, you know, not that long ago, it was just in February, um, you're seeing a lot of lawyers now coming to the forefront, you know, like Ron, with stories of cases that they've worked on, situations where they're suddenly realizing this this is not right. And so what we're seeing is more and more lawyers kind of jumping on the bandwagon and helping people like like Julie with Can't Buy My Silence in pockets throughout Canada. And that is, is just creating this... Um, basically a wave of change. And it's a positive change that, you know, we need to catch up with the way we view ourselves as Canadians, and the type of uh, people we want to be in the types of workplaces we want to work in. And I think that, um, you know, since since that resolution came through and basically said, hey, lawyers are on board with this, how do we get organizations on board? How do we get the governments on board? We've seen all of these um, bills suddenly being popped up and consultations for new legislation, and bills being introduced both provincially and federally, which is really exciting because, um, you know, otherwise, it, you know, if you don't have that momentum, it's very difficult to make the legislative changes that need to happen. But how many of those are government bills? Well, not 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 a lot of them. You're right. Well, but again, what happens is, is that because the governments are also using the NDAs, you know, with their own employees, it becomes a challenge, right? Um, but what happens is, is that you need to get public pressure. And that's part of the whole advocacy process. It's not just, we've got the lawyers now, and now we need the public, and we need people to say that this is not okay. And it's a bit tricky in this situation, because the people who don't like it are the ones who are being silenced, right, by NDAs. So you've got that, you've got that added dynamic, which makes it even trickier. But I think, you know, we're moving in one direction, I can't see it moving back. So I think it's 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 possible, and I think that it's progressive. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, organizing a revolution against secret settlements is a little bit of a tough thing to do, but I think that we are getting there. Absolutely, I agree. I agree with Joanne, and I, you know, and I take your point, Ron, that these are these are opposition, these are private members' bills, which actually explains perhaps the the strategy of the way that they've been drafted to make it 
kind of almost educative for people to see the important conditions that need to be placed. Personally, I'd like to see NDAs, um, you know, brought back to their original historical usage, which was developed, they were first developed in the 1980s out of the tech boom in California and Silicon Valley. And they are there to try to, you know, go on better than a restraint of trade because they are indefinite. But they were definitely trying to protect the development of commercially sensitive information, whether or not it was actually copyrighted or patented at that point. Or tr- but it was a way of trying to protect that new information. Um, and I think that what we should do is, is bring them back to that original use and think about the other ways in which confidentiality might be important in a workplace. If you're looking at client files or you know, you're in a sports team and you want to keep your tactics secret. I mean, we can all understand that there are pieces of confidentiality, but they shouldn't extend into everything. Everything is now a trade secret, um, especially misconduct. I, I, I couldn't agree more. If, if, if the matters are for, for um, uh, matters of economic viability of, of, of the party, then uh, would you acknowledge when you went in uh, you can sign the, the non-disclosure on the day in the door. That's fine. But when you come back to the legislation, can someone please tell me why we can't move this faster? <laughs> I mean, like, Good question. No, seriously. I mean, it's gone on long enough, uh, and, and we can beat our heads against the wall, and we will. But to what end? I mean, uh, is there a government in the country, like, like Mr. Prime Minister, who is the, most, the, the, the best person protecting women's rights and whatever why don't the feds do it what have they got to hide they have nothing to hide if they did it it would be a matter of consequence uh and 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 they would set the standard for the country right uh but you know all this loose talk by various other provinces we well we should look at this and they study they're not studying wretch they don't study bugger all it's just a pass off of of uh of, of the issue to somebody else right it's not happening it's not happening, and they hope we all go away. That's what they hope. Yeah. I mean, the, the repeated calls for studies are pretty irritating, Ron, I have to admit, since virtually all those studies take all of their data and information from our website. But, um, you know, I'm actually still optimistic. I think, for example, in British Columbia, that there is a fair chance. I mean, governments like to seem to be doing it themselves. And I think in both British Columbia and Manitoba, there is a chance that the government will take advice because they have been doing some studying in the Manitoba Law Reform Commission and in the policy lawyers in BC Justice have been looking at the issue. And in fact, one sits with Jennifer on the Uniform Uniform Law Committee. And I think that they might come back in the fall with their own bill that will be, you know, maybe slightly different approach to the one that is there at the moment, but it will still fit the purpose. And so that's what I'm really hoping for. We've made it, um, I think, bad for brand to use NDAs and good for brand to, for governments to say that they oppose them in these circumstances. So hopefully that will bear some fruit, but we'll keep going until it does. In, in answer to Ron's comment too, how do we make this faster? I mean, one way is is by having the regulator of lawyers say that this is unethical practice. And we're seeing some of that happening now in the UK, as I understand it. And if we say to the regulators, and quite often the regulators are the gatekeepers, and if we say you cannot use NDAs to cover up wrongdoing and misconduct in organizations, then that would make it happen a lot faster. You're right, we wouldn't have to wait on all these elected officials who are 
are trying to um, put other agendas forward that are that are more politically um, um, that are going to get them elected, right? Instead, you you just go right to the root of it, which is the lawyers who are drafting these agreements and say, look, this is unethical if you're using it in this manner. But if you're using it to protect trade secrets or commercial secrets, not a problem. I think that's a really good point. And uh, I know that there are several U.S. ethics committees, uh, state ethics committees that have looked at NDAs and said that they are not ethical uh, in the use in in these sorts of situations of of harassment and discrimination where they might be uh, particularly preventing people from not only being in unequal bargaining power, but also preventing them from accessing counsel because it prevents people from knowing who what counsel are skilled and experienced in uh, dealing with these types of matters. So that's an interesting aspect um, as well. Yeah, I'd also like to see um, Canadian lawyers remember um, that one of probably from their first couple of months of law school, they learned a very important principle, which many seem to have forgotten. And that is that when you make a, a negotiated agreement, you don't both have to agree to the same things. You know, it's like pineapple on your pizza. If you like pineapple on your pizza, you can have it on your side. I don't need it on my side, right? So what's wrong with a one-sided confidentiality clause that protects the privacy of the victim? Because what these victims are being told, these complaints are being told is you can only have privacy, which they want. And as I know from, from you guys who work with people all the time, and I know from my work with survivors, they want their own privacy and they're told that the only way they can get it is to do the same thing for the other side, to reciprocate. That's what an NDA is. But of course, that's ridiculous. Plaintiff lawyers should be going in there and asking for a one-sided confidentiality agreement that protects the victim, but it doesn't have to be tied to protecting the perpetrator. I think that's a good point, Julie. And I also think, you know, way back in my early days of practice, I'm I'm hopefully not that old, but you used to enter settlements for these types of complaints and you didn't have NDAs. You had, a, as Julie is talking about, a, a basic confidentiality clause um, and a confidentiality clause about the settlement amount. And people didn't feel the need to talk more about it because it, it, it gave them, you know, they found that the agreement and the settlement brought a resolution for them versus where there is an NDA, which as Ron, Ron's talked about, we've all talked about, causes the person to continue to worry about it and it hangs over them. And they're worried about breaching it in the future. If they haven't complied uh, with the conditions, if there's an exclusion perhaps for counseling, but now they want to go to some peer support group, are they allowed to talk about the trauma that's affected them in their current situation that that links back to this previous NDA situation, it's really uh, difficult for people. Has anybody ever seen an NDA which has been breached, litigated? I, I don't know yes. any. You have, Julie? Yeah, in, yeah, there's actually one going on at the moment that I wanted to talk to you about. In, in, in Canada? Yeah. In oh, Canada. I don't know about this. Yeah. Yeah. And there have also been several cases um, attempted in the last uh, 10 years or so where people have gone to be asked to be simply asked to be released and they've failed. Well, I've had those, but but uh, but but uh, I've never had anybody litigate. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I there, there, there is. 
there is one currently. And of course, um, you know, the very well-known case in Canada involving Jan Wong, um, yeah. who was a journalist of yeah. for a long time. Um, when she left the Globe and Mail after not being accommodated for her um, her mental health issues at the time, they made Jan sign an NDA. And when she breached it by writing about her experiences, they um, brought it back to the arbitrator and she was forced to repay all her settlement money. Yeah. I am familiar with that case. Yeah. I am familiar with that case. That, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Ten years uh, ago. But that was, um, that wasn't, and oh yeah, sure. That wasn't in the same, that's in the more commercial side of the equation, right? Uh, it's not not in the not in the sexual harassment side of the equation. Have we? Well, but it was it was about failure to accommodate. That's what was damaging. It wasn't anything that she was spilling in terms of Globe and Mail secrets. It was about their failure to her, accommodate her, and that's a very common basis for an NDA as well. We see them in dis, what I would call disability discrimination. We see them all the time in that area. Well, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. You know, I I read that case many years ago. Um, um, uh, and I'd never looked at it that way, but it, it, it's, you know, and, um, but on the sexual harassment, have you ever seen any cases there? Well, I think, no, I haven't. And I think that the reason is, again, is like so much about this, if you stop and think about it for five seconds, is self-evident. It would be completely contrary to the goals of anybody who wanted to keep the misconduct covered up to bring an enforcement action, because then it would all be in the public domain again. Um, you know, I'm assuming that the Global Mail thought that that was worthwhile and they could weather the storm. But um, if somebody wants to sue someone for enforcing an NDA on sexual harassment, then they're effectively outing themselves as a perpetrator or as an organization that kept that perpetrator safe. So I think that's why we don't see it. I've had many conversations with CEOs over the last year or so about why they use NDAs. Uh, and would they ever enforce them? And I get reactions like, well, of course we would never enforce them. And I ask, well, why not? Well, because we'd look like such bad guys. I mean, why would we want to do that? So I think, you know, basically this is all a fraud. Because they are bad guys. <laughs> but it's an interesting example of, you know, and I'm sure this isn't the intention of most of the lawyers out there, but effectively they're perpetrating a fraud on the public because they're telling them, A, these are enforceable and they may well not be, and B, they're saying this is absolutely the only way that you can have access to a settlement, which is, of course, not true because that party also doesn't want to go to court. So I've seen many people now just dig in their heels and say, I'm not signing, I'm not signing, I'm not signing, and they get a settlement without an NDA in the end because the people who want them to sign don't want to go to court anyway or tribunal. Yeah, I guess it comes back to how much are we talking about at stake here? I mean, are we getting the same amount, a lesser amount for not signing the NDA, those sorts of things? But you know what? It's the, it's the victim who always pays the price. Yeah, I think we haven't touched this yet, but I think it's an important also thing that I'd like to cover is prevention because you said Julie you said you know you talk to see you talk to people you you try to 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 tell also lawyers maybe you, we talked about the fact that some lawyers it's it's just weird that some lawyers push for that because we're not even sure it's legal uh, we know it's bad so how how can we prevent the NDAs to be signed in the first place if we don't have a legislation for instance in some province how can we work on the prevention thing well just for the record my view is that it's really, really helpful to have regulators um, recognize the responsibility here. But I do actually think that until we have legislation, it won't really be done um, because I haven't seen 
legal regulators be terribly effective in terms of providing complaints processes to ordinary members of the public historically. Um, I think that we need more and more lawyers to stand up and say, like Ron has and like Jennifer and Joanne have done, um, I didn't realize how bad these were. Um, I had been doing this as a matter of habit and practice, and that's, you know, I don't think it should be such a difficult thing to admit that quite a lot of what we do in the legal profession is a matter of, of, of routine practice. Um, not everything can be the latest Supreme Court of Canada argument. So acknowledge that, you know, as one union president put it to me recently, um, we used to use NDAs to get the job done. We just thought it was getting the job done. Now we know differently, we must act differently. And that's what I really hope lawyers will begin to do. And this is, I think, what Joanne was talking about earlier in reference to the resolution. Also, we're seeing like a trend towards really lawyers uh, acknowledging and uh, learning about taking a trauma-informed approach mm -hmm. in, in practice. And yeah. um, in doing that, people, we should be reflecting on the impacts of NDAs and what that means for someone. And if you, if you consider it from that perspective, um, hopefully... Uh, it will encourage you to encourage the profession to limit uh, the use of them. It would be nice to see law schools step up as well, because every single lawyer out there has to take a basic contracts class in their first year. And it'd be nice to see the law schools actually um, educating on the impact of some of these clauses, as yeah. opposed to discussing uh, just case law, which, as you said, doesn't a lot of it doesn't exist out there, but really just educating them on the potential impact and consequences of an NDA type agreement or clauses within an agreement. And also it'd be nice to see senior lawyers who have had those experiences like Ron has discussed to mentor younger younger lawyers uh, in their in their um, in their law firms but I think also you're seeing a generation of new lawyers coming in that are much more aware of the whole me too movement and are much more uh, inclined to um, ensure that the work they do is inclusive and and is perhaps a little bit more respectful of the parties I, I mean I would hope so they talk the talk uh, let's hope that as lawyers they also um, are very respectful of people when they're when they're helping clients through a difficult process like uh, settling a claim like this and would you say even in our deontology like even in when we you know where we have to respect as lawyers I think maybe we could there's something that can be done there. And do, what do you think about law societies? I mean, I kind of feel they also have some responsibility here. Le Barreau du Québec, for instance, for Quebec, but in, uh, everywhere, like law societies, do you think they could also maybe push for that? Yeah, 100%. I think there's a huge role here for the regulators and the law society to step yeah. up. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether or not that's something that's realistically going to happen. But, you know, it, it, the, the work that Jennifer is doing uh, on the Uniform Law Com Commission or Conference is is part of that work. It's it's about um, creating uh, an awareness and building that in. But I, you know, we, we dealt with that with money laundering, right? Our, our, our profession was so against doing any anti-money laundering kind of um, policies about ID collection and all these other things that banks had been doing for years. And, and there was such a resistance to do anything. But basically what happened was the law society stepped up and said, these are now your requirements when you open a file. Well, so we know, we know they have the ability to, to make those changes to move things in a positive way. And so I think there is a big role for the regulators, for sure. And the easiest way to do it is have the CBA do it on a national, on the National Ethics Code, uh, that, which gets trans, everybody looks at it as the, as the Bible, 
uh, and use that as, as the first step. It's easier to commit, and they already have a resolution, of course, so that'd be one way to do it, and then, then have the pressure from the branches come into the, uh, into the provincial uh, regulators say, hey, the uh, CBA has done this nationally. We should do it provincially and uh, do it that way. Yeah. And also maybe because Ronald, you were also talking about, you know, the people who sign it and they don't know. So maybe there's something to be done there too, to inform, to make sure to have those kind of podcasts maybe also, but to reach out to the people also, to the people who, who are forced to sign that and to say, you know, don't, don't sign it or, or, or maybe yeah, to be more aware of our rights. That's also always an issue. I feel like people are just not aware of their rights. So also making sure that, but how to push for that also, I'm, I'm kind of asking the question. Right. And I mean, even if we do get, regulated change or legal change, legislative change, there is a huge public education issue here. Um, at, just as there is around whistleblowing, it's actually very similar because people don't know what their rights are and therefore they can't avail themselves of it. But I do think that, you know, since we're speaking to the profession primarily in this podcast, it's important to say, does the profession really want to be Um, connected to using a device that so much has now been able to show is unfair, exploitative, people don't understand it. I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of people in the legal profession who don't want to be part of something that shady. Um, and I have always been convinced, but then I am a perpetual optimist, that this is one of those issues that we're going to look back on in a few years and say, do you remember all that crazy sh shit about NDAs, how people had to sign them all the time? And we'll just like shake our heads because we'll be past it. And I would like that to be sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I might also say, I know that there are uh, lawyers out there who are going to say, well, You can always write exceptions to NDA, uh, you know, counsel for the complainant can always propose additional exceptions. And that is true. But I would also suggest that sometimes you can't anticipate all the situations that will face someone uh, with respect to their need to want to disclose uh, the situation. For example, perhaps in a future alcohol anonymous type group, while their exception only provides for legal medical and financial counsel, which is usually the typical exclusion, or, um, you know, in situations where someone may be indigenous, maybe they want to seek advice from a traditional leader and that, and a healer, and that won't be provided for. Um, and I also think counsel for the employer or the person who wants the NDA, um, really think about what, what the concern of your client is and, how to limit it um, to really what is necessary. I, I think often the concern is, is talk about things on social media. In a workplace, it's usually everybody already knows about what's happened in the harassment. And so you're not really keeping something from all the um, other employees, but your concern is maybe something on social media. So maybe just a clause restricting Um, communications or, or talking or identifying specific people? I mean, I think that NDAs are a great example of something that I've seen for many, many years in the different studies I've done, empirical studies I've done of legal practice in Canada. Um, and that is because we train people to take what I call a catastrophic approach to lawyering. 
Um, everything that could possibly be a risk has to be, you know, covered off. And I think one of the things that the legal profession still hasn't really understood is that catastrophic lawyering isn't necessarily what really works for ordinary people. It might work for large corporations, yeah. but even for large corporations, I'm not sure that it isn't also a waste of energy and time. And I think the NDAs are a perfect example of a sort of public um, panic over social media, which after all has really only expanded, you know, it seems to be pretty much in the same period of time that we've seen the expansion of NDAs. And there's this need, um, which I think is greatly ingrained in lawyers by their training, to control everything, to control every possible outcome, to look at every possible, no matter how tiny possibility of something bad happening. And, you know, what I really want to say about that is, like, get over it. We're not going to control social media. We've got defamation laws, although they don't work very well either, but it's another podcast. Um, but we can't expect that we can control everything that people do with social media. And I think it's panic about social media that has largely driven this exponential explosion of NDAs, whereas the reality that those of us who work with victims know is that they don't want to put anything on social media either. They just want to be able to talk yeah. to their fans and their family and their friends and their therapists. So it's a, it's a good example of, I think, what is a poor diagnosis of what the real scale of the problem is and what could be done to actually control it. And can I just add, if, if, if we're down after a lengthy dispute with the other party uh, talking about settling a case and we settle and the last thing on the table is the, is the agreement, the release, no one is going to spend three days fighting about uh, what can and can't be disclosed in NDA. That's why the only way to do this is have some super authority uh, say, you can't do it. Because lawyers will just beat you up until you capitulate. That's just the way life is. So um, uh, just if we either have the bar societies, the, the law societies do it, or, or, or the government do it. Don't leave it to other lawyers because they have clients to represent and they'll do whatever they can uh, to get around it. And it's best to make it uh, illegal per se. That's the best way to do it. Uh, because uh, rather, because the lawyers say, I'm not going to draft this uh, release. Employer, you do it. You're on your own. Talk to them. Um, so they whisper in the ear, put the NDA in. Right? We don't need that stuff. Let's just make them illegal. Just get rid of them. Full stop. Just, just enough. Enough, enough. Talked about it too much. Well... If ever there was a good place to end a podcast, that was it. Thank you, Ronald Payne Casey. Thank you, Julie McFarlane. Thank you, Joanne Stark. And thank you, Jennifer Corr. And thank you for listening to us. I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher, and I'm saying feel free not to sign an NDA straight away. And do reach out to us about anything at all at podcasts at cba.org. Talk to you again soon.